Good to see everyone. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 3. If you're new with us, we welcome you. We are working our way through the book of Revelation here at Calvary on Wednesday night. We are currently in the second major section of the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, which contain the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Uh, last week we finished looking at the sixth letter, the letter to the church of Philadelphia, the, the faithful church. That brings us to the seventh and final letter, the letter to the church of Laodicea, the uh, apostate church. J. Vernon McGee defines an apostate this way. He says, and I quote, An apostate is one who has heard the great truths of the Christian faith, has become intellectually convinced that Jesus is the Christ, has even made a profession of Christianity, although he has never been truly saved. After having tasted the good things of Christianity, he completely renounces them and repudiates the Lord Jesus Christ, end quote. Well, I agree with that for the most part. But there are those that are apostate who embrace some really wild doctrine at one point, um, and they leave the church never to return. Okay, they're the militants. They're the ones that you know, trample uh, the blood of Christ on the way out the door. And uh, we all probably have known somebody like that. There's another kind of apostate though that's very subtle, a lot more subtle than the first one we talked about. And that is someone who departs from the Christian faith, but listen, doesn't necessarily depart from the local church. Now, that's the apostate we're going to be dealing with in this final letter. There are pastors who professed faith in Christ at one point in their lives, but then they kind of walked away from the basic tenets of the Christian faith, and yet they remained in the pulpit in whatever church they were pastoring. And went ahead and misled the whole church. And, but they still call themselves a Christian church. He still considers himself a Christian pastor. Uh, that's what we find going on here in the church of Laodicea. So let's just get into this letter. And uh, let's just start with verse 14, the very first part of the verse, which simply says, to, and to the angel. We have said we believe that's a reference to the senior pastor. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. Let me stop there. Let's look at the city of Laodicea before we go any further. Laodicea was located in the region of Phrygia in the southwestern part of Asia Minor which is modern Turkey. Uh, Laodicea was the southeasternmost city of the seven listed in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. It was located on the Lycus River about 40 miles southeast from Philadelphia. Its sister cities were Colossae, 10 miles to the east, and Heropolis, 6 miles to the north. Now hang on to that. That's going to be important next week. All right, That's why I bring it out, okay? Colossi and Heropolis. The city was named after the wife of Antiochus II. Her name was Laodice. 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 
Now, the city had three claims to fame. And again, these are important because Jesus Christ incorporates each of these into this letter um, that he is dictating now to, uh, to John. Uh, very important that he incorporates these three things. First of all, Laodicea was a great banking and financial center. Banking, banking and commerce played a key role in Laodicea. It was one of the wealthiest cities in the world due to its position on the trade routes, even minting its own coins. In fact, it was so wealthy that in AD 61, when the city was devastated by an earthquake, its citizens refused any help from the Roman government to rebuild, but rather rebuilt the city out of their own resources. Very independent folks. As you can imagine, that much wealth afforded, afforded its residents ample opportunities for pleasure, culture, recreation, and entertainment. Among other things, the citizens of Laodicea built, built for their enjoyment a 30,000-seat amphitheater, the ruins of which still stand in that area. With their wealth, the city acquired an extensive art collection, built great monuments, and collected the finest literature. Number two, the city was a prominent textile producer. The sheep which grazed around Laodicea were famous for their soft, violet, black, glossy wool. Uh, this wool was in great demand in that part of the world uh, at that time. Uh, the manufacturers in Laodicea used to weave it into carpets and into outer garments in fact, the garment manufacturers use it to produce an inexpensive, some would call uh, cheap outer garments. They were famous for one particular outer garment, a tunic called Trimeda. As Jesus would point out, it was ironic that the city of Laodicea was so proud of the garments it produced that clothed so many. And yet, as God saw them, they themselves were naked. Number three, Laodicea was also an important center of ancient medicine. Located in the city of Laodicea was the temple of the Phrygian god Menkaru, which had an important medical school associated with it. That medical school was famous for an eye salve it had developed, which was exported all over the Greco-Roman world. I mean, this town was famous for this eye salve. Uh, the Laodiceans, Laodiceans were very proud of this ISAP that helped so many to see, yet they never realized that they themselves were spiritually blind. All three industries, finance, clothing, and ISAP, come into play in this letter to the Laodicean church. As Jesus uses these physical things that uh, they were famous for and proud of and applies them spiritually to what was going on in the church there. Let's look at the church. We uh, don't see any record in the New Testament of the church of Laodicea being founded. Um, like most of the other six churches we have studied in chapters 2 and 3, it's likely that the church was established uh, as an outreach of Paul's ministry while he was in Ephesus. Ephesus was about 100 miles west of Laodicea. And Paul spent three years there. And uh, after he left, even people kept going out and establishing churches. 
Uh, that is probably how this church was founded. Scholars don't believe Paul founded it. Uh, that's pretty clear. They don't believe Paul founded this church because when he wrote to the Colossians, he still had not visited the church of Laodicea. You can see that in Colossians 2 verse 1. If Paul had founded it, I believe that he would have gone there to check on them. Paul had a, a, a uh, something he lived by, and that was he, he didn't want to, to build on another man's foundation. So whoever planted the church there, Paul would let that person minister and, and keep an eye on them. No doubt he prayed for all the churches in the area. Um, some uh, have... Um, uh, I, I should say, let me back up, Paul's co-worker Epaphras uh, did found the church in Colossae, again, very near where Laodicea was. You can read about that in Colossians 1, verses 6 and 7. He may have also founded the church of Laodicea at that time or around that time. We don't know. Some have suggested that Archippus, his name appears in Philemon, verse 2, uh, was its pastor since the 4th century apostolic constitutions named Archippus as the bishop of Laodicea. So we don't really know. I don't think it's that important unless you're a theologian and you get paid to, to uh, you know, uh, read through dusty uh, commentaries and history books because that's your job to nail this stuff down. For the rest of us, though, uh, somebody founded it, and uh, now the Lord Jesus is going to address it because of what was going on there. Now, as we said a couple of weeks ago, from the Sardis period of church history, remember each of these churches were literal churches, uh, but they also represented periods of church history. The Sardis period uh, represented the Reformation period, the Reformation period. And out of that period flowed two streams or two branches of the church. First of all, the evangelical, born-again, true church represented by Philadelphia, and then the liberal apostate false church represented by Laodicea. So again, verse 14, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. Let me stop there. I find that interesting. What do you mean? We didn't get anywhere yet. Oh yeah, we have. Okay. I find this interesting. You say, what do you mean? Notice that every other letter is addressed to the church of Ephesus, to the church in Smyrna, to the church in Pergamos, then in Thyatira, then in Sardis. Last time we looked at the church in Philadelphia. But this letter is addressed not to the church in Laodicea, but to the church of the Laodiceans. Now you say, well, that doesn't sound like a big deal. I believe the Holy Spirit is using the wording to give us a red flag as to one of the reasons the church was in trouble, all right? Again, not the church in Laodicea, but to the church of the Laodiceans. The name Laodicea means the rule of the people, the rule of the people or the power of the people. It seems in my mind that it points to a church government based on democracy. Democracy means rule of the people, or in other words, whatever the majority wants and votes for is decided upon and becomes law. You say, isn't that a good thing? No. 
because the church isn't a democracy, it's a theocracy and a monarchy. Jesus, the King of Kings, is the head of the church, and praise God, he's not elected every four years. The church of Jesus Christ must bow the knee to his authority and lordship, obeying what his word commands. We don't get to make the rules. The church of Jesus Christ is not ruled by the people attending it. I don't care who they are or what they think is right. Jesus is Lord over his church. He makes the rules and we bow to his authority, period. I mean, he is my Lord and I am his servant, right? I'm not in charge. He is. I don't tell him what to do. I don't care what the word of faith community says. You can claim everything you want in Jesus' name. You're not going to turn him into your servant, even though that's kind of the mentality behind the positive confession movement. I'm in control. I speak the words. I declare this. I want that. And the Lord has to be my servant to go out and make it happen. The Laodicean church is symbolic of the liberal apostate church of the last days. These are churches that are making the rules up as they go. Based on whatever way the cultural, philosophical, and ideological winds happen to be blowing at any given time. I think some churches stick their finger in their mouths, hold it up to the wind, and whatever way the wind's blowing, that's where our church is going. These churches, excuse me, these are churches that are ordaining homosexuals, promoting the theory of evolution, supporting Planned Parenthood, and raising the fist, quote-unquote, in solidarity with Marxist communist groups like Black Lives Matters, Matter and Antifa. These are churches that worship at the altar of Gaia, the Mother Earth goddess. Churches that are aligned with radical environmentalists who preach the dangers of global warming rather than deliverance from the fires of hell. The World Council... The World Council of Churches are some churches that fit into this group. Churches that are pro-abortion, pro-homosexual, pro-pornography, pro-Marxist churches. Churches that call evil good and good evil. You know, it's frightening as you read the Gallup polls. How many ministers don't believe in the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, or even in the resurrection? They don't believe the Bible is the word of God that Jesus is the only way to heaven, or that hell is a real place. I don't know why these so-called pastors bother to even call themselves Christians. The word Christian means follower of Christ. They're not following Jesus Christ. They are more anti-Christ than followers of the true Christ, right? And likewise, their churches consider themselves to be Christian churches. Laodicea considered itself to be a Christian church. As we're going to see next time, Jesus was not even in this church. He was knocking to get in. Yet they were convinced they were not only a good, solid church, they were probably the best church around in their minds. Again, they were not a true Christian church, like so many today who call themselves Christian churches. 
They're apostate churches, Laodicean churches. So to this church, again, Jesus says to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write these things, says the Amen. Amen is a transliteration of the Hebrew word Amen. Amen. Meaning truth, affirmation, or certainty. And refers to that which is firm, fixed, and unchangeable. In Isaiah 65, verse 16, God calls himself the God of truth. But the Hebrew word is Amen. He is the God of Amen. <laughs> amen. In other words, He is the God of all truth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, we read, All the promises of God in Him, in Jesus, are yes and in Him, Amen. You know, the Jews often would shout, Amen! Amen! After a psalm was read or after some other scripture was read where God was being exalted, they would shout, Amen, truly, what it means, truly. Jesus used this word very often when he taught, but it's interesting, he put it at the beginning. He put it at the beginning of a statement or a teaching by starting out saying the King James translation, verily, verily. Some of your translations say truly, truly. Actually, it's amen, amen. Here in Revelation 3.14, Jesus actually calls himself the amen. The only place in scripture where amen is used as a proper name. The Lord Jesus is the amen. He's the amen. He is the first and the last. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end the church of jesus christ guys is not a democracy it is a monarchy where jesus is king the new testament calls jesus christ despotes in the greek the word we get our word despot from despot jesus christ is our despotes Despos despotes he is our benevolent dictator that's the idea what does that mean? Now you call them despot. Isn't that bad? Earthly despots are bad. Because they rule with such authoritarian control. And because human beings are corrupted at, in their hearts, it usually leads to something very bad for the people under their authority. But the only king in the universe who can be a good despot, a despot means someone who has absolute control. The only one in the universe who can be a benevolent dictator, a good despot, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, indicating that he is in complete control of his church. In whoever's life Jesus is in complete control, or in whatever country, or whatever church he is in complete control, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Our whole Christian life is all about learning to let go and let Jesus have complete control. Some people, it, it happens faster than others. But I've said it before, let me say it again. The Christian life is not hard to understand. I'm not saying it's easy to live. I'm just saying it's not hard to understand. It's all about us relinquishing control. We were in control of our lives until the day we received Christ as our Lord and Savior. And the flesh doesn't give up control too easily. But the Christian life is all about us learning to let go 
more and more uh, giving control up to the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Because the more we do that, the better it is for us and everybody we are connected to, especially those closest to us, our spouses, our kids, our immediate families, and so on. But Jesus Christ is in complete control of his church. He calls the shots. He makes the rules. His commandments and judgments are final. And all we can say is his people in response is, Yes, Lord, your servant hears and will obey. That's the correct, you know. Peter, love Peter. Arise, Peter, kill and eat. Not so, Lord. You messed up, Peter. If Jesus is really our Lord, we cannot say, not so, Lord. All we can say is, yes, Lord. I hear and will obey. A democracy, guys, is where everyone gets together and votes on things. As Americans, we're big on that, right? That's why when the church came over to America, it was primarily congregational churches. Churches where the people were in control. They were kind of a democratic form of church government. And it was really big because of the tyranny that Christians experienced in, in, in England at all. When they came over here, they didn't want any one person controlling them. You know, the king of England, uh, you know, set himself up as the leader of the Anglican church, the, the, the state church in, in England. And that was a mess for anybody who didn't want to be an Anglican. So when they came over here, they decided we want freedom of religion. And as we talked about in our study uh, during the lockdown, that meant they wanted freedom to practice Christian denominations. They didn't really come over here wanting to establish a country where, you know, there were Buddhists and Confucianists and Muslims and, you know, not that they would have excluded those folks, but that in their writings shows that they, that was not what they, when they say freedom of religion, they meant freedom to practice any Christian denomination of a person's choosing. But a democracy is where everyone gets together and votes on things. And whatever the majority wants, that becomes the final word on the subject. The law for everyone else to abide by and adhere to. Jesus Christ is the Amen. He has the final word on all matters of faith and conduct in his church. And why not? He purchased it with his own blood. He created us. After we gave our hearts to him, we became new creations. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why shouldn't he have complete control of his church, of his body? And you know what? After he declares himself to be the amen, okay, with an exclamation point kind of after it, he does that because he wants to let the Laodiceans know right up front. Because uh, He wants them to understand this right up front because here was a church that seems to have rejected the basic tenets of the Christian faith. They were apostate. That's what apostates do. They turn away from the faith. The faith once delivered to the saints. Remember what Jude said, earnestly contend for the faith, that body of truth we call the New Testament, but in particular, the gospel. 
always under attack because God's word is living and powerful. So the devil has to try to discredit it, kill it in any way he can, because the word of God will bring life to those who embrace it. The devil knows that. Jesus said, my word will set you free from the devil's lies, from the devil's control. The Laodiceans didn't really embrace that. They were a church in name only. But Jesus says, look, I am the amen. No, they thought they had the final word. They were a democracy. Hey, whatever we decide, we're the people, we're the, it's all about us and what we want. Jesus said, no, no, I'm the amen. I have the final word with regard to what goes on in my church, right? This was a church that seems to have rejected the basic tenets of the Christian faith. You say, well, did they reject the deity of Christ? I don't know, maybe. Did they reject the Bible as God's word? Probably. And they were making up their own rules, their own standards and morals as they went on. In other words, it was a church that was ruled by the people and not Jesus, not God. And that always makes for disaster because, guys, man rules from his own fallen heart. And as the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all else and is desperately wicked. Guys, I don't have to tell you, it's becoming more and more apparent every day human government is a disaster. Human government is a disaster. Why? Because power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And now what? People want to give the government more power? You got people voting for socialism, which is communism light? I mean, the government hasn't proved man ruling himself is a disaster. That hasn't been proven enough in some people's minds. They want to give the government more power? God help us. God help us. But unfortunately, it's not limited to politics. This mentality also has crept into, it creeps into and has crept into the church. Where you have some pastors who think of themselves as authoritarian dictators. There was a movement years ago, and it's probably still around in some form, called shepherding. And those pastors that embraced and taught shepherding basically said that uh, and taught that they were in control of the lives of their people. When I'm talking about in control, I'm talking you couldn't sell your house, you couldn't take a job, you couldn't even marry somebody unless your pastor or pastors allowed you. They had the authority. And in their minds, it was absolute authority. And you know who got the worst end of that deal? A lot of these guys, well, you see the David Koresh's, you know, others like him. These men are dictators masquerading as men of God. They're power-hungry, corrupt shepherds who call the shots and pray in God's people. Read Ezekiel chapter 34, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. That, those, that's the, you know, the hard line. There is a softer, gentler version of this kind of leader. There are leaders in the church that are so obsessed with popularity, prestige, and power that they'll do and say almost anything to build their churches 
and keep people coming and might I say keep them giving so that they have become these pastors nothing more than man-pleasing ear ticklers instead of faithful servants of Jesus Christ Paul said that's going to happen in the last days where people would no longer want to hear sound doctrine these are church folks not the world the world has never wanted to hear sound doctrine but there's coming a time when people in the church would no longer want to hear sound doctrine the greek is healthy teaching from god's word but would rather gather them to themselves teachers um, because of their itching ears to gather to themselves teachers who will tell them what they want to hear If there's a market for worldly shepherds that will tickle ears, there's always going to be guys that will say, I'll take it. I'll take that job. What do I care? I just want money and power and prestige. If I can get all that by just telling people what they want to hear, I'll do it. No conviction. No Holy Spirit. You know. So the bottom line, guys, with this church, and we just... We just start reading a few words as this letter opens up, and already we get the indication from what is said, and we're reading somewhat between the lines. I think we're on solid ground based on what's coming after this opening verse. But the bottom line is that this church was messed up, where the people were in control and were making the rules up as they went. And so Jesus begins this letter to this church by calling himself the Amen. The word Amen is the only thing he draws out of the vision of himself that he gave to John in chapter 1. Remember now, as we said, as we've been going through these letters, the book of Revelation opens up, chapter 1 becomes the first main division, then followed by chapters 2 and 3, the second main division, and then chapters 4 to the end of the book, the fourth section, the fourth main division. As we studied the vision of Jesus in chapter 1, every one of these letters, except for the letter to Philadelphia, for reasons we talked about when we studied that letter, every one of these letters opens up with something. Jesus takes something from that vision of chapter 1 that he, he showed John, and he incorporates it into the letter he's dictating to that particular church uh, something that in some way relates to the church, um, identifies the church, something, okay? Do you realize that out of the vision of Jesus in chapter 1, the only thing Jesus takes is one word, one word, verse 18, amen. Why? Because this was a church that didn't have their eyes on Jesus so the vision of Jesus in chapter 1 wouldn't have meant anything to them. The fact that Jesus calls himself Amen is important. Again, the word means truly. Truly. The fact that Jesus calls himself Amen is important because Jesus is the great physician, isn't he? You want a doctor that's going to tell you the truth, right? Jesus Christ is the great physician, but he is the amen. He is a true physician in the sense that he comes to this church, a sick church. 
a very unhealthy church. A church that is completely oblivious to the fact that they are sick spiritually. He comes to this church and he gives it to them straight. He gives them an accurate diagnosis of their spiritual condition and then he gives them the cure. Verse 19, repent. Repent. I mean, what doctor, what good doctor would say to a person with a severe and potentially life-threatening sickness, ah, you're fine. You're, you're okay. You just need to develop a healthier self-image. That's all. We laugh at that. And yet that's exactly what churches are telling people today. Sin, which many pastors and churches believe is either no big deal today or is non-existent. Some churches don't even believe in sin. All right? Whatever you want to do is your truth. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. We talked about that Sunday, right? But many pastors today don't think sin is a big deal, if it even exists at all. In fact, they have turned sin into a psychological disorder. It's all in your mind, they say. It's all in the way you think about yourself. That's why in the Church of Jesus Christ, self-esteem teaching has exploded. I heard a pastor say years ago, a good man who teaches the word verse by verse, he said there was a time when churches would hire unto staff. If they had a little extra money, they would hire unto staff pastors, teachers who would exegete the scriptures, teach the scriptures. Today, those same, many of those churches are using that extra money to hire on to staff psychologists. Psychologists. These uh, men and women, instead of preaching repentance, which is how you deal with sin, sin is not the issue anymore. These pastors and Christian psychologists are preaching recovery which is how you deal with a psychological disorder. That's why you see so many churches that are using 12-step programs because that's the therapeutic device that they believe will assist people in recovery, whatever they're recovering from. We're all recovering from something. Okay. Uh, every one of our issues, every one of our problems can be traced back to low self-esteem. I respect Jim Dobson. I've read his books, but years ago he said that every problem that a person has can be traced back to low self-esteem. That is absolutely untrue. They did a survey among prisoners years ago, 200 I think. Do you realize that not any one of them had low self-esteem? They all thought they were pretty good people. I'm talking about prisoners now, okay? They pretty much all thought they were good people. None of them had low self-esteem. In fact, when they ripped people off, their reasoning was, I deserve it more than you do. I'm a better person. I'm taking your stuff because I, 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 I deserve it more than you do. That's not low self-esteem. That's high self-esteem. Guys, Jesus is the great physician who alone can heal the most serious disease known to mankind, sin. Sin. Which doesn't just kill the body physically. 
it will kill the soul eternally. But listen. The self-sufficient and proud can never receive the cure that only Jesus can give. You must come broken, broken of self-effort and self-confidence. You must come to him destitute of any self-worth. The poor in spirit, Jesus said, these will see God. And the Greek is a word that means somebody who is so destitute. Um, they have no resources. They have no way of earning to the slightest degree anything God wants to give, let alone salvation. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are broken of self, who come to God destitute, saying, Lord, I deserve nothing. I can offer you nothing. I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I receive Jesus as my Savior. Please wash me clean. Please make me a new creation, Lord, because if you don't do it, I don't deserve it. I can't make it happen. The Bible says that God's ears are attentive to the brokenhearted and contrite. But the proud, the arrogant, he resists. And yet that's exactly what we're being taught in churches today. Of course, he's no longer with us, but um, Crystal Cathedral, his name escapes me. Thank you, Robert Schuller. Years ago, he wrote a book um, called Self-Esteem, The New Reformation. In that book, and I didn't read it, but I was looking at excerpts from it. But in that book, here's what he basically presented. He said that you only pay what something is worth. This idea that if a car is worth $500, you're going to pay $5,000 for it is ridiculous. Then he applied that to our redemption. If Jesus was willing to pay to redeem us with his own blood, we must be pretty special. You have got to start thinking of yourself, not as a worm, you know, uh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. No, no, no. Got to get the thumbs under the suspenders, you know. I must be pretty special that Jesus would die for me. Wow. What a load of garbage. But that's what's permeated the church. He might be an extreme example of that. But that mindset is everywhere still. Those that think they deserve eternal life are those who will never get it. Because they're always looking for things that they have done as a basis for God, giving it to them because they've earned it. Salvation is a gift. If you try to earn it, you won't, you won't get it because God will not share his glory with another. The last thing God wants, and I think the last thing all of us in this room want, is for people to be standing up in heaven going, oh, you know, I deserve to be here. You should have saw the life I lived on the earth, you know, that kind of thing. How nauseating. As I've said before, let me say it again. The only thing you and I contributed to our salvation, you ready, was the sin. Everything else he did to redeem me, to save me, to give me everything. It was all him. 
you must repent and receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Because he, he alone is the only one who can cure you from the disease of sin. Back in verse 14, these things says the Amen. Listen, the faithful and true witness. Not only is Jesus the Amen because of who he is, he's God. Only God is true in every sense of the word. But he is the faithful and true witness because of everything he said and did. You know that Jesus went around in his earthly ministry representing the Father, speaking on behalf of the Father, right? Uh, the Pharisees tried to put him down numerous times. No, who cares about your testimony? Your testimony is worthless. So I don't, it's not my testimony of myself that matters. It's my Father's testimony and the Spirit's testimony. And so he said, I do always those things that please the Father. The Father sent me. The Father has told me what to do, how to live my and, and conduct my ministry. Uh, I have faithfully declared the Father's words. In other words, he came from the Father and came to the earth and now was a witness testifying of all that the Father is, all that is waiting for people in heaven. Jesus Christ is completely trustworthy. He is perfectly accurate and his testimony is always reliable. He said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the what? Truth and the life. The Greek word translated witness is martis, from which we get our word martyr. It was a word that meant witness, but in those days, if you went around being a witness for Jesus Christ, and of course as the apostles went around telling people how they had witnessed the resurrection, and so on, well, it was pretty sure that Rome was going to arrest you and kill you. So the word witness became synonymous with dying for your faith or what we call martyr. This was in contrast to the Laodiceans who were neither faithful or true. The Laodicean motto seems to have been, and I, I kind of, since a lot of churches feel this way, we just want to be positive and happy. There's a lot of churches like that, you know? We don't want to step on toes, you know? We just want to be positive and happy. Come join us. Let's all be positive and happy together. Verse 14, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses claim that this means that Jesus was the first creation of Jehovah God. In fact, he was the greatest creation to ever come from the hand of Almighty Jehovah God, and that Jesus then created everything else. So he was the first creative act of Jehovah God, and then through Jesus, everything else was created. Another one of their favorite scriptures, which they use to prove that this doctrine that Jesus is a created being, is Colossians 1, verse 15, where Paul said, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. Listen, the firstborn over all creation. And the Jehovah's Witnesses say, see, see? Paul said it right here, that Jesus was the firstborn over all creation. That means he was the first one Jehovah created, and then Jesus created all 
Other things is how they translate that in their New World Translation. Let me read to you Colossians 1.16 in the real Bible, and then I'll read it to you out of the New World Translation, which is the Jehovah's Witness Bible. Colossians 1.16, here's how it reads in the true Bible. For by him, speaking of Jesus, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Here's what they, how they translate that, because they have to translate this, because you can't have Jesus making all things and still have him being made, a created being. Can't do that. It's a contradiction. So here's how they translate that. For by him all other things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all other things were created through him and for him. That's heresy. It's not biblical. All right, but what did Peter, excuse me, what did Paul mean when he said that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation? The word firstborn is the Greek word prototokos, a word used in ancient Greek to describe either priority in time or supremacy in rank. And as Paul uses it here in Colossians 1.15, I think he has both in mind, both in mind. First, it is true that Jesus was before all created things in time. He existed before anything was created. Colossians 1.17 says that. John tells us that to open up his gospel, right? John 1, verses 1 to 3, In the beginning was the Word, a title for Jesus Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the idea is before the physical universe existed... And then, verse 3, I'm paraphrasing, and then all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So before anything existed, it was just the Godhead. And then at one point, Jesus began to speak, and the physical creation came into existence. But he was before all things, before everything. In the physical universe, he existed. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity, and as such, he is equal with God the Father and equal with God the Spirit. He is eternal. He had no beginning and will have no end. When he was in incarnated into Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit, and of course was eventually born on this earth, but when he was conceived in the womb of Mary, at that point his humanity started, but not his deity. As God, he has always existed. Again, he is eternal. So when Paul talks about the firstborn, Jesus Christ is the firstborn in Colossians 1.15, uh, when applied to Jesus, first of all, means priority to all creation and time, true. But it also, and I think this is primarily what Paul had in mind, means priority over all creation in rank as in supreme or superior one. You know, Solomon was certainly not 
the firstborn son uh, of David's. David had other sons that were uh, born before Solomon. And yet Solomon was called the firstborn by God in Psalm 89, verse 27. Why was that? Because the word was being used of superior one. Out of all of David's sons, Solomon in God's eyes was superior. Why was he superior? Because he was in the Messianic line. And through him eventually, Messiah would come. Also, Ephraim was not the firstborn son of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Manasseh was his firstborn. And yet, in Jeremiah 31, verse 9, God calls Ephraim my firstborn. That doesn't mean in chronological order. The word simply means of superior ranking. Out of the two, even though Manasseh was firstborn, Ephraim was superior in the sense that he was more of a spiritual man than Manasseh was. So firstborn implies both Christ's priority to all creation in time and his sovereignty over all creation in rank. And in no way, listen, in no way does the word or the title firstborn indicate that Jesus is less than God or that he was created. No way, just not there. Now getting back to Revelation 3 as we bring us to a close, getting back to Revelation 3, Verse 14, where Jesus says of himself that he is the beginning of the creation of God. And some people stop and say, but wait a minute. Doesn't that prove, doesn't that mean that he was the first person created by Jehovah God? What else can you read into that? The beginning of the creation of God. Come on. J.W. say that proves he was the first creation. Of Jehovah God. No, it does not mean that. The word beginning in the Greek is arche, which can mean a ruler, either an earthly ruler or even a heavenly ruler. Michael the what? Archangel. He was a ruling angel, is a ruling angel. In other words, he was, you know, a general up there. Uh, he commands angelic you know beings he gets his orders from the lord jesus christ and he then you know michael the an arch the we don't know if he's an archangel or the only archangel but the word means ruler he's definitely a ruling angel so the word could mean that but the greek word arche can also mean listen very important the origin the source or the active cause of something Jesus is the ruler over all creation because he is the active cause or creative force behind all of the creation. By him all things were made, John 1 verse 3. Without him nothing was made that was made. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or principalities or powers, all things were created through him. He's the source. He is the creative force of all things that exist. And they were created through him and for him, which means he is the ruler over all creation. 
Look, Jesus is the source or active cause of creation. This is directed, this idea runs contrary. And no doubt the Holy Spirit in part directed it to our day, okay? Jesus is the active cause, the uh, creative force behind the creation. This is directed at the reigning ideology and belief system of our day, evolution. Evolution rejects creationism. Evolutionists reject creationism in favor of naturalism. This is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, heresies embraced by the apostate last day's church. We have to leave it there tonight. We'll touch on it next week. We're not going to get into a big, lengthy thing. I don't want to spend too much time on this. But we're talking about apostate, an apostate church, which represents last day's apostate churches. And last day's apostate churches and the world in general rejects the creator in favor of, well, you know, they reject creation in favor of naturalism, which is what evolution is based on. And we'll look at that next week. And um, just sad to see what's going on in so many churches today. And uh, again, we'll leave it there tonight. We'll... Uh, open up next week by looking at some of these things but we are in the last days the bible tells us that certain things would happen in the church in the last days and we're seeing it and we know jesus is coming soon and you guys i believe you're the church of philadelphia one of them which compared to the last days church is a very small group. Jesus called his true sheep a little flock. Where we get our the Greek word we get our word micro from. Out of all of Christendom, over a billion people who profess to be Christians. If more than 12 15%, 15% were really born again, I'd be shocked. So the Laodiceans far out number Jesus faithful true church which means all the more we got to stick together all the more we got to stand tough pray for each other pray for pastor John MacArthur I just read in an article before I came over here that he is defying the governor's order in California MacArthur feels that if and he's not the only one MacArthur feels that if the governor allowed people to protest without masks, social distancing, then he can't pick on the church and demand we not meet. So he is meeting in defiance of the governor's order, what we have called righteous rebellion, godly civil unrest. We, we answer to Jesus Christ. And they've, they've threatened, they've imposed already thousands of dollars in fines upon Grace Community Church out there. And they're threatening John MacArthur with six months in prison if he doesn't cease and desist. He said, bring it on. I'm ready for a prison ministry. 
Pray for him. He's not a young man. But God bless him. He's a faithful man. And I may not agree with Pastor John on some things. But I stand with him as a brother. He's my brother. And I will support him. I will pray for him. And God give me grace to be like him if the time comes when I have to make a choice. Am I going to follow Jesus Christ or am I going to follow man? And you can pray for all your pastors. We need God's grace. We don't know how bad things are going to get, but I know one thing. I want to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And Lord, in these last days, these difficult, dark days, even in the church, we ask for grace and strength to be a light. Be with Pastor John MacArthur, Lord. Strengthen him physically, mentally, and spiritually. I pray, Lord, that you'd go before him and that you would turn the heart of the governor like the rivers of water and cause him to relent, to back off, and to not do Pastor John any harm, give him any prison time. But if he does, Lord, use it for your glory. And we thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.